choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 351 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 15, first deep space EVA, and splashdown. With the astronauts in the command module heading back to Earth, it almost seemed the mission was over. However, there were some critical events remaining, beginning with the first ever deep space EVA. This is a CBS News special report. A ride on the moon. The flight of Apollo 15. This morning, astronaut Wharton takes a walk in space. Reporting from the CBS News space headquarters in New York, correspondent Walter Cronkite. Good morning. Well, today is Al Wharton's day in space. For three days, you know, he worked quietly by himself in the Apollo spacecraft, taking pictures, making observations while orbiting the moon, while his two crewmates, David Scott and Jim Irwin, were roaming the moon's surface in their lunar rover, telling us about it, televising incredible pictures back of the towering lunar mountains and the deep canyons and those wondrous moon rocks. Well, now, reunited with Worden and on their way back to Earth, it's Scott and Irwin's turn to sort of take a back seat. Right about now, Worden is prepared to ease out of the Apollo hatch and take man's first walk in deep space. Now, of course, walks in space have been done before, seven times by Americans, uh, twice by the Russians, the Russians involving three of their men, but always in Earth orbit, uh, just a little over 100 miles above the Earth's surface. But uh, now the Apollo spacecraft of number 15 is 196,954 miles out there in space, just about uh, 48,000 miles from the moon. It's at about the slowest point of its uh, passage. It's just gotten out of the moon's gravity and into the Earth's gravity. It's just beginning to speed up now, and it's only going about 2,035 miles per hour. Of course, to Worden, there'll be no sensation of speed out there at all in the limitless void of space. Carefully and slowly, Worden will ease himself some 15 feet to the rear of the spacecraft to retrieve the precious film that he has taken from special cameras in the bay of the spacecraft. The first time this has been done, it will be repeated on Apollo 16 and 17 if it works well. It's vitally important to get that film back. Scientists believe that the pictures he has been taking in moon orbit perhaps are as valuable as the information, and that is terribly valuable, that Scott and Irwin got in their moon walks. And uh, Wally Shira is with me again uh, for the report of Worden's walk in space. Incidentally, the cabin has just been depressurized. We heard, uh, Wally, they're depressurizing it now, so this walk ought to begin any moment now. 
Is this, does it make any difference that it's deep space that, uh, as to the danger of getting out there in that hostile environment of space? No, well, I'd say the, the comparison is uh, relatively uh, insignificant, other than the fact that you don't have the Earth theoretically around to protect you. You could be on the back side of the Earth, for example, from uh, meteorite damage, but uh, that's almost academic. Uh, I would say that uh, once you're above our Earth's atmosphere, you're naked to space, and uh, in this sense, of course, uh, being naked to space, he's protected by this suit, the, the same type of suit that was used by uh, Scott and Irwin on the moon. Not as rugged, and it doesn't need to walk on the surface of the moon, but it is a suit that's been optimized since the Gemini days. So I'm, I'd be really interested to see how well this mission turns out. Here. He's, of course, going to have a vast, a different scene uh, below him and around him than the fellows who had the Earth right down there right. underneath them. Dave Schumacher is in our studio with Leo Krupp, the chief research pilot for North American Rockwell, the builders of the command and service modules. Gentlemen, uh, what will we see out there today with the televised picture of this walk? Waller, I think uh, perhaps the first point to make, Leo, is that uh, this really isn't a stunt, is it? Uh, there is an important reason to go back, and I wonder if you'd orient us with the spacecraft and this Simbe scientific module and what uh, Dave, uh, Al Worden will be doing. Well, there certainly is no stunt, uh, David. Uh, there's a lot of valuable information in the Simbe that we want to recover and take back with us. Uh, the command module is up on the other side of this, the top of this mock-up. And on the open hatch, we will have a TV camera with a wide-angle lens, which will shoot down, and you should be able to see the entire sim bay. And you may even be able to see uh, Jim Irwin working in the hatch occasionally, uh, helping Al tend his tether, his oxygen line, and also receiving some of the equipment from him. Well, if the uh, command module's on the top, bring me the route uh, down that he comes to, to work in this area. Well, Al will come out head first onto some handholds that we have on the side of the command module. He will translate down to handholds here, at which time he will swing his feet around and put his feet into these slippers that we have, which give him a, a rigid platform to work from. One of his first tasks after he's in the, in the slippers will be to retrieve the film from the pan camera. He has a, a solid in-canal cover on this particular compartment which he'll take off. He will then take the soft cover off, and to re retrieve this precious film that he has, he grabs a hold of this handle, pushes it in, which is a cutter bar. That'll cut any film that's left in the reel. It'll also close the light lock so we won't have any danger of exposing the film. Then with about a 15-pound pull, he pulls out this cassette, which is about the size of a lot of ladies' hat bags. It weighs 80 pounds on Earth, but it'll be weightless for him. He will then take this back up, hand it to, to Jim Irwin in the hatch of the, uh, of the command module. He will pass it to Dave Scott, and he will temporarily stow it. Well, of course, you have something to brace on here, the uh, the earth and gravity. He needs those footholds to uh, to maintain his position, doesn't he? That's right. To pull 15 pounds to get that cassette out, he'd have to be stabilized by something. That's one, Leo. What's two? Well, the second task he's going to have is to retrieve the film from the mapping camera. Now, this is actually the film from the mapping camera as well as the stellar camera. The stellar camera is on a 35-millimeter spool also in the same cassette. So the second task will be to release this handle here, which also cuts this film, provides a light lock. He will then get this cassette out, pass it into to Jim. You mentioned uh, the stellar camera, and that, of course, is so that they can relate the, the pictures they've taken of the lunar surface with, uh, with the, uh, where they are in the, in the stellar system. Uh, secondly, this camera here, just to give someone an idea of the picture they're taking, this is one frame. We don't have any time, but anyway, this is one frame, one shot, uh, taken here on Earth. Uh, and uh, I understand that on the moon they'll have a resolution of about five feet from lunar orbit. Is that right? Anything smaller than five feet they won't see, but uh, anything larger they will. That's five feet from a 60-mile mi orbit. Waller? Quite a 
remarkable camera, as remarkable in its way as the uh, television camera, which gave us such great pictures of the lunar rover activity of Scott and Irwin. The uh, camera today that will be taking the pictures very shortly, and they'll power that up uh, as soon as they get the hatch open, that should come in another five uh, minutes or so, uh, will not be the same camera as used on the moon, or the same type. This is a Westinghouse camera. That was an RCA camera on the moon. Our coverage of today's walk in space will continue in a moment. All three astronauts floated back into their spacesuits and helped each other zip up. They placed guards over the control panel switches so Al would not kick them as he floated outside. Then Worden disabled some spacecraft thrusters so they would not fire while he was outside. And finally, they stowed and tied down loose items in the cabin. After all the work Dave and Jim had done to collect moon rocks and place them in sample containers, they didn't want their prizes to float out the hatch. They worked slowly and carefully through their preparation for Al's spacewalk, and everything went very smoothly, and Worden was glad because he was about to do something never tried before in the program. Next, they depressurized the cabin. Al pressed the safety lock that meant the hatch couldn't be accidentally opened. He pumped the hatch handle to rotate the latches out of their lock position. Then, with a careful push, he swung the hatch open. The hatch is open, Al announced. At 196,000 miles from Earth, Al poked his head outside and carefully mounted a TV camera and a movie camera on the hatch to capture the spacewalk. Then, grabbing the nearest handrail, he soundlessly floated outside into the void. You can see the difference in this picture from everything else we've seen in the film of previous spacewalks because you don't have the Earth swirling around underneath there. You don't have any color, nothing in the background except that black, deep void of space. Al paused a moment and waited for Jim to poke his head and shoulders out of the hatchway so he could keep an eye on Al while he made his way down the side of the spacecraft. The Simbay was slightly to the left of the hatch, so Al swung across the face of Endeavor and let his legs float up, and then he swung around and worked his way down the side of the spacecraft, hand over hand, never using his feet. To Al, it seemed it was even easier than the water tank training. Worden pulled the cover off the panoramic camera, released the film cassette, and tethered it to himself. It came out even easier than he expected. He made his way back to the hatch and gave Jim the film cassette. Beautiful job, Al, baby. Remember, remember there's no hurry up there at all. Dave stowed the panoramic camera film deeper in the cabin. Al floated back down the side of the spacecraft and back down to the Simbay much faster this time. It was now time to remove the mapping camera and bring it back inside too. This time, the cover did not cooperate 
and Al had to twist and pull hard three or four times before it came away. But after that, it was simple. He pulled the mapping camera film out and floated it back over to Jim. Al's tasks were completed now, and he was amazed they seemed so simple, considering he had to practice so much for this deep spacewalk back on Earth. Finally, Al carefully pulled the hatch closed, and it swung in smoothly and latched easily. The film canisters with their priceless images were now safely inside the spacecraft. The big event for the next day, day 12, was the press conference. Newsmen at the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, who had covered the flight, had a chance to submit questions to the astronauts. One of the questions asked each astronaut was about their most exciting moment of the flight, and Dave Scott's answer was probably the best. He said, quote, I guess the most impressive moment that I can remember is standing up on Hadley Mountain, Hadley Delta, and looking back at the plane and seeing the lunar module and the real and Mount Hadley and the whole big picture in one swoop, end quote. After the conference, Houston reported to the astronauts that the special mirrored device left on the lunar surface by Dave and Jim was bouncing laser beams back to the Earth perfectly. However, the TV camera left at Hadley Plain was less successful. It had been panning around the landing site when it suddenly stopped working. Dave of course, offered to go back up and check it out. And to that, Capcom Joe Allen responded, I knew you were going to ask that. Day 13, the last full day in space, the crew spent much of their time stowing all the items in Endeavor's cabin. The command module center of gravity could not be all balanced during the carefully planned plunge back through the Earth's atmosphere the next day. The crew handled the moon rock sample containers with particular care until the space beneath the couches was jammed with carefully arranged white bags. Then, at last, it was time to settle in for their last sleep in space. On splashdown day, the astronauts were jolted awake by a Hawaiian war chant piped over the radio by Mission Control. The crew began work first with Al shutting off the Simbay experiments for the last time and retracting the booms and powering down the experiments one by one. Houston then cryptically asked both Dave and Jim to keep their heart rate monitors on all the way through re-entry. Houston was not concerned about Al's heart rate monitor. Dave complied with this, still unaware of the reason. Three hours from landing, the crew made one last minor change in their course with their little thrusters, a burn of about 21 seconds. 
and Mission Control confirmed they were in the center of the corridor. The crew grew busier now in the spacecraft, checking all the systems, such as the batteries, which would feed power to explosive devices that hurled out the parachutes, and they needed to work in a precise and accurate sequence. Al checked the re-entry thrusters, and they eventually responded with a reassuring snapping sound and flashes of flame outside the windows. At last, it was time to separate the command module from the enormous service module. Al flipped the switch, and in a carefully orchestrated and speedy sequence, pyrotechnic devices neatly severed the water, oxygen, and electrical connections between the two modules. Then they heard a thunk as the service module separated and drifted away from them. It was a good separation. All that remained now of the enormous rocket launched from Florida was the little Endeavor command module, its heat shield exposed for the first time during the mission and pointed firmly in the direction of flight. 35 seconds to entry. Let's listen in. Some more scenes from the Okinawa. We're listening. We're not hearing anything. It's 18 seconds, 17, 16 before they hit the atmosphere up there, 76 miles above the Earth. 36,053 feet per second. Range 1,307 nautical miles. Should be an entry interface. Endeavor plunged down into the darkness at over 30,000 feet per second and waited for the first sign that the crew had reached the outer fringes of Earth's atmosphere. Then, the heat shield began hitting the first wisp of air. Look out the window. You can see ionization, Jim remarked. Faint yellow-orange glowing tendrils appeared outside the windows as they pushed through the atmosphere and lit the air into hot plasma. Suddenly, they broke into daylight. Oh, that's the earth down there, baby, Al cried as he peered through the glow and began to see familiar features. The spacecraft was angled precisely so that the heat shield dug into the atmosphere the astronauts began to feel a very gradual deceleration, a little like putting on the brakes when driving. The earth zipped by the windows unbelievably fast. Endeavor was designed with an offset center of gravity, so it had a little bit of lift, not much, but enough to maneuver. By digging into the atmosphere, they made sure that they didn't skip back out into space again. The glow outside the windows increased, as did the feeling of deceleration. Looking up, a long, glowing trail formed behind the spacecraft like a lit neon tube with flashes of pink, green, red, and yellow. They were slowing dramatically after their plunge through space, but still raced across the face of the planet. The ionization built up until they lost the ability to transmit radio signals to Houston. 
The G-forces increased and the fiery orange glow outside the spacecraft brightened. Now they could see the trails of glowing gases swirl as they changed path around their blunt spacecraft and twisted away spectacularly from behind Endeavour. After almost two weeks of floating freely, the deceleration built until they weighed six or seven times as much as on Earth. Lying in the couch meant the force was on their chest, so Al Worden didn't really notice it. But Jim Irwin wasn't doing so well and felt like he was unable to move and close to blacking out. In his book, Irwin called it an endurance test, a traumatic experience as you go from zero G's to almost seven G's during the re-entry period, during the fireball. He felt it so much because his body had become lazy. His heart was lazy. He had lost muscle tissue. He had become flabby and weak. So going from zero G's to seven G's felt like going from 1 to 14 on the earth as far as Jim was concerned. Once the danger of skipping out of the atmosphere was over, Al flew a precise course to take them to their targeted splashdown site. Closely monitoring his instruments, he pulsed the thrusters to roll the spacecraft, using the heat shield as a kind of wing to change their lift. The pressure on their chest eased a little. Leveling off their path, they eased their downward plunge and slid through the atmosphere as Al maneuvered left and right. Right about here, we're close to blackout, so we don't have communications with the crew. That happens, as you mentioned earlier, very few seconds after the so-called entry interface, which is merely a, a point in space. It's not a plane that they cross. Fireball is so brilliant that if you remember, we've had uh, airline pilots sighted from hundreds of miles away. It's really a spectacular sight from inside. Uh, I guess we keep forgetting to describe that, but uh, the glow that comes out at this point uh, just trails back for many, many miles. It's almost as exciting as what the people on Earth see when the booster goes in orbit with that large, large glow of uh, gas. Blackout uh, should be ending just about now. Well, it ends in another uh, minute and a half. They're just about at their maximum heating rate right now, Bonnie. Just mm-hmm. about that 5,000 degrees on the heat shield. This is a tribute to man, too, when you think of the fact that uh, that heat outside is over 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit inside. It's a very comfortable 70, 75 degrees, and yet the thickness of this blanket is not that much. It's less than a foot from the outer interface to the inside of the cabin. That was one of the mysteries that had to be solved before we could go into space. It surely was. Solved it with a with actually a surface that melts away, but at a very gradual rate. Exactly. It's a process we course, uh, of course call ablation, and it really means that the material goes off as a gas and takes the heat with it. They're at the maximum, uh, they've hit the maximum G load, uh, that up about, about 8 Gs now, is it one? 
Uh, I'm not sure what the level is on this one. If it's the so-called classic nominal re-entry, uh, it could be down about five and a half to six. Uh, it depends on the trajectory. Uh, normally they would go for six. The maximum the vehicle is designed to uh, take on a re-entry where you uh, don't exceed the limits is 10 Gs. That's to take care of any large guidance errors, but we try to keep it down if everything is uh, right on the line. So if now it was around six or so, that would put them at uh, uh, weight. If they weighed 150 on Earth, I could weigh 900 pounds. 900 pounds, that's it. Of course, it's spread out over those couches, and that's why we have those large areas of couch to uh, support that weight. Now we ought to get the end of the blackout uh, just about now. Let's listen. First word in the spacecraft that successfully through the blackout. We should hear from Houston in about four seconds. In fact, they've got uh, tracking. Should be coming out of blackout now. Apollo 15, Houston, how do you read? Apollo 15, Houston, how do you read? There they are. They're out of the radio blackout. Mission Control was on the radio again, and Dave reported everyone was in fine shape. Endeavor now slowed to 10,000 feet per second. 100 miles to go, Al reported. As condensation rained down from the docking tunnel above them and soaked Dave in the center couch, soon Al was unable to maintain any more horizontal movement. Gravity pulled their slowing spacecraft down, and they dropped like a rock. Around 24,000 feet above the ocean, the heat shield cover at the top of the spacecraft whipped away and two small drogue parachutes fired out to reduce their speed. Good drogue, Al reported. Drogue chutes should be out now in uh, just about uh, 30 seconds. Actually, it would be 30 seconds from uh, now if our clock is right here. Visual contact. Visual. Visual contact, I heard, yeah. So they've got visual contact from the Okinawa, but we don't see it. Uh, or from one of the uh, from one of the helicopters, perhaps. Be listening to hear the Endeavor confirm the drogue shoots out. Should come about now. As Endeavor fell into the thicker atmosphere, the pressure outside grew, and fresh air began to enter the cabin through a special valve. Once the drogue chutes had done their job, they were released and three more small parachutes then popped open and pulled out the large red and white main chutes. Al reported, And the mains are out. The spacecraft slowed and swayed as the chutes smoothly opened.
with that beautiful sight, as John just said, beautiful. There's no other word for those three shoots. <laughs> I think we got $445 million in this mission. A precious load of moon rock and beyond value. The lives of three men. And after it all, it's three parachutes that have to do the job. Next, the command module propellant was dumped. The fuel lines of the now useless thrusters were still full of dangerous chemicals and flight planners believed it was safer to vent them before the spacecraft hit the water. The chemicals would burn as soon as they touched each other, and if a fuel line was ruptured, there could have been a nasty fire or explosion. As the fuel vented, red smoke passed the windows of the capsule. Helicopters from the USS Okinawa, the assault ship sent to recover Endeavor, had the spacecraft in sight and circled as it fell closer to the ocean. But then a problem. As the red smoke cleared, Al saw widening holes in one of their parachutes, collapsing it into a useless strip of cloth. We've got a streamer on one, Al reported. A helicopter pilot confirmed that one of their main chutes was not open. It was only streaming. They got a foul shoot there. That may be the drogue. Uh, that shouldn't be there. I don't know what that is. Looks like they've got two shoots, Wally. It does. Yeah. Shoot yeah. What, does that, what does that do to the increase in their speed? Uh, they land. They hit about 32 feet per second, which is well within their tolerance. The, uh, no one would go for it. The land landing, I wouldn't particularly like with two, but a water landing, I wouldn't worry about it at all. How would you feel, John? I think two shoots would be all right. Yeah. Get some down a little bit faster anyway. They're 3,500 <laughs> feet now, but they sure do have a power shoot. They really do, yeah. So, I think it's, uh, it looks it's like, like it's squitted there, doesn't it? Yeah. It looks like it's trying to come back out. It's probably giving them a good bit of lift. those uh, shoot deploys, a uh, shoot like that might actually be better than three shoots. Why, John? Well, uh, the shape of it sometimes does amazing things to the amount of lift that, it, that comes out of it. It's a strange thing. Well, that's an encouraging thought. Well, the, uh, the normal descent would be about 26 to 28 feet per second there, between 30 and 32 feet per second, so it's not a, a great percentage increase in the descent. No. That's why we have three shoots on there, is that you can make it with two with one if you're on a bad day. You normally land at about 22 miles an hour. You're suggesting that this is going to be around 35? No, I was using feet per second, oh, so uh, it'd be about maybe 25 miles an hour on the basis of that. Not very large increment. No. And as John Young says there in Houston, it might even, uh, might even slow them further. Since there was very little wind that day, it appeared that when the propellant was vented, the corrosive toxic cloud rose right up into the chute and ate away the material and shroud lines. Here's how Al Warden recalled the experience many years later. And uh, I want to ask you, Al, 
to kind of go through that sequence. Turns out we only needed two shoots. It was two shoots for safe. But describe it, what you saw, when you saw, and also what the landing was like um, in terms of uh, you know, that descent. You know, Jerry, that's, that, that's kind of an interesting question in light of some discussions that we had this afternoon on the bus. Because what we were told on the bus today was that some of the analysis of the problem with that chute had to do with a D-ring or something that came loose and the risers the riser, let yeah. loose, right? Uh, and then the other side of that story was that we had purged the fuel lines of the hypergolics and they went up in the, they, they followed the risers up and they burned big holes in the parachute. I am absolutely amazed at these guys who make analyses of what happened on a flight without asking me when I'm sitting there in my seat looking out the window and watching it happen. You saw Nobody three, you said saw three shoots, a right? word. You saw three shoots, right? I saw three shoots. I saw holes develop in one shoot, get bigger and bigger and bigger. The shoot... I never saw a riser go bad. There was no such thing. Saw the holes get bigger and bigger and bigger. The chute finally streamed. We came down on two chutes as we were as we were getting down to the water. The second chute was developing holes. Uh-oh. Now we lost all the chutes because when they when they cut loose, they they sunk they and they never got it back. Uh, but we lost the one chute, and it was because of the uh, of the fuel fuel purge on the way down. As Al continued to look out the window, to his horror, he saw holes developing in a second chute. If it failed, the crew was in real trouble. The astronauts prepared for a hard landing. I thought I heard him say, stand by for a hard impact. That's a hard impact. (laughs) A pretty good splash. What a picture. My gosh. Landing velocity on two shoots is 28 feet per second, or 32 feet per second versus 28 feet on three shoots. So it's uh, about one seventh more, isn't it? That's right. It's just not that big a percentage. Just enough to make you remember that you landed. That, those shoots you don't cut off. There's a switch you activate to uh, cut those shoots naturally after landing to get them clear. They're in a so-called stable one position, which uh, in, in a rather calm sea, as you see, about 10 miles an hour uh, breeze blowing from the east. And uh, the waves are said to have been three feet. They don't even look that high from this angle. So uh, they've got a good uh, position there. At 4.46 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time on August 7th, 1971, 295 hours, 12 minutes, ground elapsed time, Endeavor hit the ocean hard, gouging deep into the water that splashed high over the cabin windows before it bobbed back up to the surface. Dave opened up another air vent to the outside and got a face full of seawater soaking him once again. Al quickly powered down the spacecraft. The second chute had held out long enough. The crew was safe. Here's how Dave Scott recalled the landing many years later. Well, you know, when the command module lands in the water, 
there are two stable positions, and it's floating. One is with the apex up, which is called stable one, and the other is with the apex down, which is pointing down into the water, which is called stable two, and there are some balloons that you blow up to get it back up. Well, I would like to make the point, the Air Force crew stayed in stable one. Yeah. Some of the naval crews ended up in stable two. Don't they like stable two? Navy guys like stable two, right? Well, I guess they like I to swim. They, do. they like to swim. They are twice as stable as well, you are. Well, they're, they're Navy guys. They like to look out the window into the water, not into the air, right? The recovery team was fast. As soon as they splashed down, Navy SEAL divers were deployed into the water. The SEALs busily attached an inflatable collar around the spacecraft, as well as a raft for the astronauts to climb into. Soon, a diver had the hatch open and threw in some life preservers, which the crew put on. The ocean was calm and a warm breeze came in through the hatchway. After a final check of the cabin, it was time to leave. Dave and Jim went first, and Al was the last to exit. He took a final look around his home for the last two weeks. Now it seemed impossibly tiny. Feeling a little shaky, Al climbed out of the hatch and into the waiting life raft. It felt warm and sunny out there, and the blue ocean looked beautiful. The astronauts were quickly winched up into the helicopter. As the Okinawa came into view, they scrambled to put on fresh blue flight suits, clean sneakers, and baseball hats. In their agreed explorer style, they had stayed unshaven. By the time they arrived on the ship, they were freshly dressed and feeling the effects of 1G. Hundreds of cheering sailors, important dignitaries, and the world's media watched as they landed. After being weightless for two weeks, Al felt concerned about his legs. He had to consciously tell himself how to walk. He had lost the automatic sense of how to step. Jim also appeared shaky. The crew briefly spoke to their audience, but the doctors were eager to get their hands on them and quickly took them away for post-flight tests. Even when lying down on a platform, the astronauts could feel that their heart rates were higher than normal. There was still no mention about the in-flight heart concerns either. After the medical checks, they got their first shower in two weeks. Then it was time for lunch in the captain's wardroom and celebrations with the whole crew. And finally, they received the good news that Endeavor had been brought aboard the ship without any water going through the hatch. It had been a long and eventful day, and now the crew could finally get some sleep. Of course, there was no quarantine required for this mission, and the debriefings only lasted a few weeks. Then, it was time for NASA to send the crew of Apollo 15 on their next mission, this assignment would last the rest of the year, and this time it was all about public relations. NASA needed to keep the tax dollars flowing. Sending the crew around the country, then around the world, allowed them to celebrate and show off their successes. The first stop in early September was Washington, D.C., 
Vice President Agnew decorated each astronaut with the NASA Distinguished Service Medal, the highest award that NASA could bestow upon them. The next day, they headed to the Capitol building. From the podium, where so many historic speeches had been given, they addressed a joint meeting of Congress, an unusual honor for an Apollo crew given only previously to Apollo 8 and Apollo 11. The Apollo 15 mission met nearly all its objectives as well as a long list of other tasks, including experiments. According to the conclusions in the Apollo 15 mission report, quote, the fourth lunar landing resulted in the collection of a wealth of scientific information. The Apollo system, in addition to providing a means of transportation, it sailed as an operational scientific facility. End quote. Apollo 15 saw an increase in public interest in the Apollo program, in part due to fascination with the lunar rover, as well as the attractiveness of the Hadley Real site and the increased television coverage. According to David Woods in the Apollo Lunar Flight Journal, those subsequent missions traveled further on the moon, brought back more samples, and put the lessons of Apollo 15 into practice, this feat of unalloyed exploration still stands out as a great moment of human achievement. It is remembered still for its combination of competent enthusiasm, magnificent machinery, finely honed science, and the grandeur of a very special site in the cosmos beside a meandering real and graceful massive mountains, Hadley Base. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 351 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 15, First Deep Space EVA, and Splashdown. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released in two weeks on November 19th. Now, I have an important announcement to make. I'm going to take a little deviation from the timeline and go ahead and cover Apollo 16 and 17 next. With the funding challenges and my uncontrollable tendency to go into too much detail and the increasing demands on my time, I have become greatly concerned that I won't get to finish the moon landings before the podcast ends. After all, we are seven and two-thirds years into the podcast, and I'm still just finishing Apollo 15. So as a precautionary measure, a precautionary measure only, 
I'm going to do my best to go ahead and cover Apollo 16 and 17 next, beginning with the next episode. Moving on. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 177 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. I had just a couple quick afterthoughts. I ran a little bit long on this episode. First, I would like to thank listener Tom for the fantastic CBS audio clips that he sent me for this mission. The Internet Archive did not have several crucial clips that I wanted to put in, and he had them on these CBS audio clips, and I really appreciate that. So, Tom, thank you so much. And if you or any other listener have good long news clips from one of the news agencies, CBS, NBC, ABC, for Apollo 16 or 17, please contact me, Mike at SpaceRocketHistory.com. The clips I find on YouTube are just very short and not very detailed, and I like to get a, a longer clip so I can go through it all and pick out the important parts and leave out some of the stuff that's not that important. Next, at the end of this episode, I gave a lot of thought about mentioning the postal covers incident. But in the end, I figured I had covered that well enough in the biographies. And it would kind of end the mission on a down note, which clearly... Apollo 15 did not deserve to end on a down note. This was a great mission and a fantastic crew. And what a, what a great enhancement that lunar rover was. I think that was my favorite part. I remember from being a kid, that rover, I loved that thing. <laughs> I think that was my favorite part. And it, gosh, it added so much to the mission. Okay, moving on. If you are enjoying the podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, I don't want anyone to contribute any money who can't afford it. Please, please, please don't do that. But if you can afford it, consider supporting the podcast. For over seven and a half years, we have been entirely listener-supported. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Sadly, finances took about a 33% decline during the month of October. And over the last fortnight, we had just two new contributions. But I would like to thank Andy S. from the Czech Republic, who sent in another donation and is at the Apollo level, and Hank R., a big fan from Berkeley, California, donated at the Mercury level. Thank you for your support. Our total Patreon donors have decreased to 244. Our goal is to get to 300 by the end of the year. Our total donors for 2020 have reached 404 with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's Donor Giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, friends. It's time to reveal the winner for this episode. Remember, you will get the choice of a Space Rocket History Magnet, or two coasters, or two stickers, or two static clings, 
or two holographic stickers, or the new SRH archive magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Ted Henley. Ted Henley, if you would email us, Mike, at spacerockethistory.com to tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we will get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 404 of you who have contributed thus far in 2020. My sources for this episode were Falling to Earth, an Apollo 15 astronaut's journey to the moon by Al Warden, NASA, Two Sides of the Moon by David Scott, To Rule the Night by Jim Irwin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Apollo 15 Flight Journal, Apollo 15 Mission Report, Apollo 15 Lunar Surface Journal, the Internet Archive, Wikipedia, and CBS News. And that is going to do it for this episode. I'll try to have episode 352 posted by Thursday, November 19th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.